Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. Gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless M. Elliot with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. Everyone's just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or wherever it's Mammityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing grew from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> welcome, welcome, horror fans. It's Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time, and that week in horror podcast. The only podcast that knows you're there because it can smell your braids. And if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us at the top of the week, remember, we do this live every Wednesday right here on YouTube. Come hang out and see all the stuff our editor doesn't want you to see. This week, we're covering select horror films released June 4th through June 10th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Eugene, and with me tonight are JL and Aaron. Good evening, everyone. What's up? How's it going? Doing good, doing good. How are y'all doing? Oh man, we had what we did the bloodbath and the after dark back to back, or we yes. did the we did the bloodbath. No, it was the after dark yesterday, and then the bloodbath on Monday. So it's been a busy week. So yeah, far. it has been, been busy. Parade of JL's bullshit. No, <laughs> <laughs> I thought Johnny wasn't here today. <laughs> so somebody, yeah, we, with Johnny on set, with Johnny gone, someone has to keep up the level of bullshit. You know, because you know he does it so well, and I'm some big ass shoes to fill, to be honest. You know, but I the salt is building up, and someone has to shovel it out before it fills. (laughs) Someone has to milk the cow. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty intense. We did. uh, Oh, uh, we was it was it was pretty wild. We had a um, we had the after dark and the bloodbath back to back, and the after the bloodbath was pretty awesome. That was that was fun. Good arguments on both sides. We're gonna let you know we're not gonna spoil who won that. We're gonna let that drop. And then of course the after dark also kind of a nail biter because you know it got up to like game match. And so that was exciting. So I'm looking forward to uh to dropping that so people can hear about that. But so much fun. It, it was busy. You know, I like it when I like it when it's busy. And yeah, it's always it's always kind of like nerve-wracking when you get into a time crunch. And Eugene can talk about this, like when you're on a set. And it's like you're you're crunched into that final day, and you're like, we gotta get this, 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 this. You start freaking out. But then once you get it done, you're like, ah, so much better. (laughs) Well, the thing that kills me is like the um, pre-climax lull where like you're getting ready for it, you're getting ready for it. And then things always slow down right before you go into something. And it's like, we can't slow down. (laughs) (laughs) Pump the brakes. What brakes? (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Well, we got a couple. We have something we want to take a look at before we dive into tonight's film selections. But first, let's go ahead and make sure we get this up. Bam! There's the amazing Patreon banner. All of those incredible people who helped to make this show possible. We love all of y'all. Thank you all so very much for the support. And I want to say hi to, uh, we want to say hi to uh, everybody in the live chat. But first and foremost, you have Casey Cooper's up in there. Casey Cooper says, We can horror 100 subs to go. That's true. We are 100 subs on YouTube away from. Uh, from 1,000, from, from essentially from from monetizing the channel, which will be pretty badass if we can do that. But we are 100 subs away from our first our first thousand. Which that's the first big hill to get over. Now on Spotify and all the other uh, places, we're doing we're doing pretty damn well over just on the podcast sites. But on YouTube for the live show, you know, we'd like to hit that thousand. That would be really neat. So thank you, Casey Cooper, and good to see you. We do appreciate it. Who else I love how you're it? optimistic that like we won't just get demonetized every time as soon as tits and blood are in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. That's a very good point. It'll, it'll just be yellow cards all the way down, every single one. All right, let's see. Jeremy Duncan is here. Good to see you, Jeremy Duncan. Travis Brown as well says, good evening, boils and ghouls. Good to see you, Travis. Sherry Tilly is here. Uh, good to see you, Sherry. Thanks for being here tonight. Paragord Princess as well says the calm before the storm. And then Jeremy Duncan says more like the clam before the turd. Well, I don't I don't know if we're going to have to fire up the turd polisher 9000 this week. I don't think so. Maybe. We'll have to see. <laughs> a light buffing cloth, maybe. Just the just a little surface work and we should be all right <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go industrial on these motherfuckers so javers good to see you this is good evening all good to see you javers thanks so much for being here tonight uh let me see who else we got in the chat sarcasm is here this is good evening fellow fiends good to see you sarcasm thanks so much for being here and of course angel rivera as well who hung out with us at the after dark thank you so much angel it was awesome to have you in there it was, that was the first one and it, and it was wild because it was the first one angel's ever been to and it ran and it went long because it was neck and neck and so it was pretty exciting as to who was going to take it. And so Angel got to experience a real, uh, real slobber knocker as far as horror trivia goes. Because I went, I went tough. I didn't want to give you all a bunch of like gimme questions. I wanted like legit horror fan questions. You know, it's like was Professor Loomis circumcised or uncircumcised? What? <laughs> <laughs> what Dr. was the poster Loomis in the professor. background of this one throwaway shot? And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> It's in two frames of the entire film. You should have seen it. Real, real horror fan questions. For, for questions for people who've seen the movies multiple times. That was what was more. I didn't want to go like just gimme questions. Like, though, because if you give gimme questions, Travis is going to win every single time. Just because it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I wanted legit questions. Did you, do you not have faith in us? I kind of have <laughs> faith in y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm not playing. Because I, I know. I mean, I know the stuff, but I'm I'm not the one. I'm not the one. I, I haven't played in the after dark myself. In I how long? I in months. I haven't played in the after dark. So eventually, I'll get to be in the after dark again, and then the balance of the universe will be restored. See, see then I'll counter with like super easy questions. Gonna be like, what is Gizmo's name? Really. <laughs> 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 my problem is i get that train wreck where i get one that i'm just so close it's right here and i'm just trying to grab it and then every car on the train after that just slams into that same damn mess and i'm just shot 
what I really I really enjoy watching as the host, I enjoy watching everybody's kind of reaction to the question when they don't know it off the top of their heads because they'll be like they'll like they'll get a every all of you do like you have like a tell. You have like this bodily like reaction and then your face does something and it does the same thing every single time. Now, when you all know it, the hands immediately go up. It's like, bam, I know it. I'm good to go. But when y'all don't, when you're not sure, you like Eugene, he'll be like hot, like his shoulders go back and his head kind of like, huh? And then he'll think. <laughs> and then Eugene, and then Aaron kind of does this like side thing. Like if it's, if it's, <laughs> if, it if I know stops. it and it's like, I can't get it, it's up here. If I have no idea, it's down here. And I'm just like, <laughs> destitute, just like. Damn. <laughs> it's always it's always so fun. It's, it's fun testing, y'all. Let's see what we got here. Jer Juggernaut Jared Reed is here. Good to see you, Juggernaut. Thanks so much for being here. And I think this is Juggernaut Jared Reed's first uh, live stream. So we appreciate you hanging out, Juggernaut. Thank you. Gosh of Heckfire is here. It says, good evening, my loves. Good to see you, Gosh. One of the best names on the internet. Thank you so much, Gosh of Heckfire. Tina Jones is in the house. Good to see you. It says, woohoo. Elizabeth S. as well. One of our amazing supporters. Good to see you, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for being here. Sir Cab says, hoping Johnny is here for Willow Creek. Johnny was on set for Willow Creek. So, unfortunately, he won't be here to talk about the movie. You get it? Because it's a Bigfoot thing. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I've got to say up front, I'm starting to develop a distrust for any horror with movie with the name Creek in the title. Because there seems to be, like, a pattern. <laughs> this one wasn't as bad as some of the past ones, but it's like, Ah, oh, shit. It's another what, Creek what about, movie. What about Wolf Creek? What about See, Wolf I was to say, Wolf Creek is the exception, but that is the yeah. exception yeah. to the rule. Most of them are bad. Most of them that are one, bad. That one, yeah, yeah. I am thinking about Creek being named so fucking iconic that it's just like its own term. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Welch is here. Good to see you, Charlie Welch. Is, yo, Aaron, you made it. Good to see you, bud. Said, uh, the only man on the internet never make a bet with. Good to see you, Charlie. And Juggernaut says, yep, my very first time catching a live podcast here. Thank you so much, Juggernaut. Uh, Javier Hara says, Weekend Horror, where are the visuals from Eugene? Damn. Storyboards are coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be on uh, Weekend Horror uh, OnlyFans. Yes. It's the only, way, it's the only yes. place we can put up Eugene storyboards. PenisPeopleStoryboards.com <laughs> Where does that <laughs> chainsaw look like a penis? I don't know. I can't draw a chainsaw. <laughs> Why are these penises uh, holding penises? <laughs> Those are Andrew two Rivera motors says, for the chainsaw aside from the blade. <laughs> Andrew Rivera says it was an awesome battle. It really was very, very cool. Uh, let me see who else we got in the house. Rodan, no last name is here. It says Dawson's Creek was a terrible horror show. Um, it was. It absolutely was. And uh, Casey Cooper says Shite Creek. Yeah. It, you know, oh, and Jeremy <laughs> Doug says it's not a creek. It's a crick. That's true. That's, that's Aaron. That, that, that's what they're called where Aaron's from. Where Aaron's from, they're all they're crick. Cricks and hogs. How did you come down? Do your washing down there by the crick. Hang it up on the roof to dry. It's <laughs> <laughs> like some lonesome dumb shit. Well, y'all can stay all down there by the crick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, love it. Oh, Sir Kevin says, yes, very much like websites with freedom in the name. Agreed. <laughs> or or YouTube channels with truth in the name. Speaking yeah. of which. When I was watching uh, High Tension for the podcast, and I sent this over to our group chat with Weekend Horror, we were watching it on uh, Favesome. It was like a free streaming service, and they have like, the mm -hmm. commercials and stuff like that. And a commercial comes up, and it was, if you are white, Asian, and male, and you have been discriminated against for employment, call American Le American first, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to say the entire name because I don't want to 
promote them on the podcast, but call this number today. And we're like, was, was, was that like partially racist? And then the next question comes up. Then the next commercial comes up during next commercial break. And it's like, are you white male and you're discriminated against? We're like, what? What? I, I, yes. I don't get treated like shit near enough. I am tired of this discrimination. <laughs> it just, it made me think of it because it was like things like, when things like when it's like American flag, first legal, da 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 da, and um, stuff like that. It just made me think of, so I, I recorded the commercial and I sent it to him. I'm like, am I watching this commercial wrong? And you're like, that was, that was, it was pretty twisted. Yeah, it was, it was pretty like people slash legal. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was pretty twisted. Joshua Lee is here. Good to see you, Joshua Lee. And he said, and continue with the great Boggy Creek, too. Enough said. Good point, Joshua Lee. Really? Oh, man, oh, man. So, coming uh, before we dive into tonight's selections, um, this uh, we have a trailer we want to take a look at. And this trailer was actually put up on the Discord. And so, if people haven't seen it yet, <laughs> sarcasm says, Caucasian privilege guilt. <laughs> <laughs> very true sarcasm very true so uh this one was put up on the on the uh the discord now everyone i mean everybody all of you know how big of a fan of the original universal monsters i am and the idea the or sorry the pipe dream of like a universal dark universe where all the monsters are in it you know it's it's a pie i consider it a pipe dream because i don't think it can be successfully pulled off i don't think they can mcu the universal monsters it's not going to happen but i don't mind them trying because at least we occasionally get solid movies because blumhouse's invisible man was fucking amazing elizabeth moss that was just you know an incredible fucking movie i really really love that one um but now there's another one that's out that pays a bit more homage to the original, uh, to the source material, to the H.G. Wells story. So I'm very, very curious, and I want to show it to y'all. I didn't know if you got a chance to watch it. We talked about it, like I think, I think it was mentioned uh, during the After Dark, but or uh, during the previous episode. But I wanted to actually show the uh, show the trailer to everybody. Have you guys seen it yet? No, no. Usually, no. usually, if you ever bring up a trailer, I want to watch it on the show because I want to showcase my genuine reaction to it. Okay, now there's going to be I I I'm going to I'm going to predict there's probably going to be a 50-50 on this, but let's check out the trailer for Fear the Invisible Man. So that was the trailer for Fear the Invisible Man. Hmm. It okay. almost well, has a thinking- feel to it, like the. Like the BBC, like back in the 80s, BB, the BBC did some M.R. James and a few other authors' movies. Um, and it's sort of kind of what you would see in line with uh, Crimson Peak almost. Like not the actual story elements, but the feel of it. Um, it almost seems like that. So I'm kind of like, how well is that going to fall in line? Because the thing that... that the thing they always mess up when they try to update Universal Monsters is they make it about the other person. That's where The Invisible Man was a great movie, but not as, you know, a follow-up or reboot or however you want to title an homage to the original Invisible Man because it wasn't about The Invisible Man. And they use those monsters as a um, kind of a walking metaphor for humanity. Everything was, you know, played up bigger 
and everything. And that's the point of the original Universal Monsters. And they don't get that. There's a couple in the 80s that came close-ish in that regard. But then again, they weren't in line with Universal. Um, well, Hollow Man, yeah, Hollow, Man played that really, Hollow Man played that really strong. Hollow Man played that really, really strong. And, and by... by like yeah. focusing on the concepts like you'd be surprised what you will you be surprised what you're capable of when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore. The whole concept that the that the that that the shedding of his identity of his recognizable identity enabled him to do these horrific things that he did. You know, escalating from you know going from just basic pranks and fucking with people all the way to straight up you know mass murder. So, and I always yeah. dug that because he's because as we see his his degradation. Yeah, it's absolute power corrupts absolutely too because anything you can get away with, you will get away with, especially when you dehumanize yourself like that. Yeah. And see, I can go, I can agree with Aaron on this one because there's a reason why it's called Frankenstein and not Frankenstein's monster because it's about Dr. Frankenstein and the monster is merely a byproduct of what he creates. For this trailer right here, it can go we can go one or two ways because it does definitely have that bbc feel and honestly it feels a lot like a doctor who episode it really does i like the period piece i like the kind of harkening back to victoria yeah Netflix. there's there's no there's yeah. nothing wrong with that and i i like a lot of doctor who there i'm not slamming doctor who by any means i like um a lot of the once they revamped it in 2005 um, so it's really going to come down to is how well the story itself is executed. If the story is executed well, I can get past some of the cheesy effects and some of the stuff easily, easily bypass that. But if the story isn't executed well, then you start paying more attention to some of the lower production value stuff. So it's really right. up in the air for me. And I found it, it, was, it was it was odd because I knew the trailer. The trailer has fantastic production, you know, production value. Like you know, they read the recreation of Victorian England, very similar to From Hell. It gave definite definite vibes of that, a kind of a From Hell vibes, kind of um, Van Helsing vibes, very much you know the the kind of H.G. Wells mentality, mentality, the different kind the kinds of architecture in that time period in England. And I love that they captured that. They obviously the costuming is going to it looks fantastic. I was a little off it was weird because the fire effects were some of them were both really good and fire stunts are particularly difficult to pull off but some of them were really good and some of them were really not were kind of like not good it's like okay that doesn't look good at all but and the transformation him going to invisible that looks a little cheap but the invisibility aspect when he is invisible looks fantastic and it just goes to show how far we've come in our ability to render people invisible on screen, uh, on camera, or render them invisible for a film production. That we've really got that in hand, probably thanks to the advancements made by Hollow Man and that move, because that movie really advanced it. Like, you know, how are we going to render these people and uh, render uh, render an individual completely invisible to the screen, which they did extremely well in that one. So I'm really curious. I'm curious. I'm actually I'm more excited for Last Voyage of the Demeter, but I like this one. Just kind of like, you know, a good classic. Instead of like taking Invisible Man and dropping it into contemporary times, let's go back to the roots and, and you know, chase it from there, which I really kind of dig. Yeah, you the know? Victorian era is great for stuff, especially like this one. But it's the societal tipping point between superstition and science. So you can kind of intermix and dabble with them. It's harder to do nowadays because, I mean, it's 
it's immersion, but at the same time, it's it's pushing the bullshit because if everybody else in the movie buys it, then the viewer will probably buy it. It's part of the inbuilt universe. Um, and it doesn't work as well today because you really got to, you have so many more scientific criteria to me that people can just be like, well, that wouldn't happen. Well, I'm the, I'm the, that wouldn't happen, asshole. So I just say that. <laughs> 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 you have far more standards to meet, and it, it kind of knocks it out of it. Cause like, you know, Frankenstein, too, the interesting thing about that is. Everybody's always like Frankenstein is, wasn't was the scientist, not the monster. Well, it's actually that was technically his his son. That was his child in that movie. Part of what I always saw, and it was like getting your kid into the world without them turning into a complete bastard. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of was a father-child relationship. That's that's what I seriously loved about Penny Dreadful was the relate. You know, one of the best things about that series was the relationship between the original monster uh, Proteus, the the uh, the monster and Frankenstein, and how what how you know in his fear he abandoned him, just like left, and how he came up on his own and had to fight for himself. Very you know thrust into nature into the deep end and survive, and he managed to do so and came about his own and finally made his way back. Now educated, fully you know like fully. Uh, I guess, you know, I would say uh, habitated to like, you know, modern society. And I loved that aspect to it and their relationship between the two of them. So that was one of the best, I think some of the best acting uh, throughout that entire, throughout that entire series. I see Tesla radios here. Good to see you, oh, Tesla yeah. radio. Who says finally getting a chance to watch a stream again. Good to see you, Tesla. Thanks so much for being here. Plot hole has jumped into the chat. Says there are a trio of sexy bastards. Good to see a plot hole. <laughs> and good to see, see you. And I think I saw. Uh, nope, uh, nope, I didn't. So I didn't see somebody new. So uh, good to see you. Uh, good to see you, bud. Uh, Sir Kevin says hi, Johnny. Stick around for Willow Creek. I'd love to hear your thoughts. It's going to be hilarious. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. I kind of dig. I I lo I love period horror. I love going back and watching that. It's going to be really. And I think it's going to be. I think it'll be entertaining. So no, obviously not the budget of Last Voyage of the Demeanor, but. You know, just a chance to go back. Movies like that, like From Hell, Radio Dig. Yeah, I really dig it because it's so expensive and requires so much dedication to go back and recreate those. Yeah, they've just got to get some people on board that have a passion for the original movies. Like you're talking about MCU ish. Well, everybody there, like either they're a really good filmmaker with a solid ability to convert material, a lot of them have passion for it. So they just need some people. They actually give a damn about the original instead of being like, well, I'm going to take the title, a little bit of the original, and make my own vision. No, fuck your vision. You have a stencil. Use it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I hey, mean, Sally Skellington, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. And I mean, the thing is, is to create the key to creating a dark universe is you go back to original horror. That's right. everybody's trying to do. Like, oh, let's make it like the MCU. No, we already have an MCU. We already have that. If you want funny superhero stuff, there's like 25 movies of that already out there. But let's go to horror. Make them scary. The 2020 Invisible Man works because it's scary. Yes. Go back to the horror roots. That's why when you have like the Conjuring franchise, the Conjuring franchise felt like it was stumbled upon. There was no intention. When you watch the first Conjuring like in 2013, there was not an intention for a universe out there. It was just like, here's a movie. 
Okay, cool. Here's the conjuring too. Okay, here's his other stuff. And they kind of just kind of spewed out. I'm not saying they're all good, but I'm saying that's where you follow that formula if you want to create a horror dark universe. Yeah, stop trying to develop the setting and the flash and flare and two two settings good backdrop, but start developing the characters so people care so you can actually transition to another movie on the basis of those characters. Like even if they're an aside. Flash and Flair doesn't work. We've seen it. We saw it with Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing. Like, they tried to make this big, crazy action movie, and it failed. I didn't even watch Tom Cruise's The Mummy. It got trashed so bad. I'm like, <laughs> they, they, they did a mummy that was actually great. It wasn't universal, but they did a good job in the action venue, but it's not going to break off into its own universe. Like, you have to invest in the dramatic elements, the character development, and the story arc. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Make a good film first, and then you can add to it. I uh, say Plotel says Willow Creek is the greatest movie of all time. I brushed my teeth to that movie, or something like that. I <laughs> yes, okay. Um, intriguing take on a found footage film. I'm very curious as to how he's going to back that up. Nemo eight thirteen is here. Good to see you, Nemo eight thirteen. Uh, and Joshua Lee says kind of what happened with Paranormal Activity. The first one was decent, but uh, yeah, it, it fall it falls apart absolutely. All right. Well, what do you say? We got uh, we got movies, and it's interesting that, you, that you're bringing up the uh, the new uh, Invisible Man because the theme of that is is in line with our first movie. Someone else can say something. Oh, I was waiting on <laughs> the trailer. Jail. What do we have up first? All right. Well, it is cool that uh, we talked about that as far as the the original, oh, the uh, the new Invisible Man, because the idea, the themes of science going wrong and science in the hands of evil men. Uh, looking back, we're going to go back to all the way to the fifties. I love fucking sci-fi horror from the fifties. Released June fifth, nineteen fifty-four. We have the movie. Uh, I tried sarcasm. Segway much? I, I gave the cue, man. I did. I gave no, the you, cue. That, that, no, that statement had finality. You didn't transfer shit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to keep going because you had the first movie, so I thought you were going to go, oh, yeah, well, actually, it leads us into blah, blah, blah. And then you just stopped. I'm like... I stopped taking a drink. Uh, uh, Tesla Radio says, signs go wrong? Never. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yes. Uh, this one uh, came out June 5th, 1954. We're going to take a look at the trailer for GOG and break this one down. I got thoughts. Let's watch this trailer. <laughs> Get yourself together. <laughs> I, I, I was half expecting it. Woman. Like, yeah. So uh, GOG, an independently made 1954 Ameri uh, science fiction horror film, um, directed by Herbert L. Strock and written by Ivan Tors, who did the story, Tom Taggart did the screenplay, and starring Richard Egan, Constance Dowling, and Herbert Marshall. Uh, the film is actually the third film in what is known as the OSI trilogy, the Office of Scientific Investigation. It was the third film, the first ones being The Magnetic Monster and Riders to the Stars, and the, this third film follows a group of scientists who are uh, stationed at Novak, which is the Nuclear Operative Variable Automatic Computer. 
And in the course of doing their experiments, um, a an enemy plane begins to beam signals into the computer, into the big computer, and takes over the entire uh, system, and then releases it, and then uh, manages to take over and release two massive robots, two huge mobile robots with multiple arms and gripping tools and flamethrowers and shit and lasers, and starts to kill everyone in the facility, and. Uh, them fighting against the uh, fighting against the technology, and eventually, you know, it, it's it's entertaining. I, I was surprisingly entertained. I I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, and <clears throat> Sir Kevin says spoilers and such. This movie came out in 1954. Man, come on, <laughs> the, the moratorium <laughs> is over on this bad boy. But I won't tell you exactly how it ends. You know, maybe maybe not. It may come out, but I will say this: I thoroughly enjoyed this film, and uh, watching this led this led me to immediately watch the first two films so i had to watch the magnetic monster i had to watch riders to the stars and then watch then uh then you know i had gog first so i kind of went three one two um i dug what was done here i was pleasantly surprised because i really dig when horror especially the time period 1954 because the you know the ideas of what was scary at the time were greatly influenced by what was going on in the world especially with scientific advancements leading up to the moon launch um, leading up to like the, the space race. And I loved what was scary at the time. And then it sounds ostensibly was science run amok and science in the hands of evil people. So, horror done the science way has always been intriguing to me. Well, it's, it's, so the thing about this movie, the thing screaming, like it, you may not enjoy this if you're not into this kind of movie, like not just horror, but sci-fi subgenre, because it's a very prototypical movie, and that's in the subject matter that it covers because, like, he's talking about cryogenics. They don't have the word cryogenics yet. Um, talking about, you know, launching the satellite. He's like, it'll be a giant TV. I'm like, as a camera, dude, and that's what Sputnik had on it. But um, there's a lot of it. the technology itself. They're just at a level of discussing it where they haven't established all the terms that we're used to, like, if it's talking about, you know, sending men into space in a cryogenic state, now we're generally going to call it stasis, something like that. So it was really developing. And then another thing, too, so they've got all these devices and they feature them and how they're dangerous and how they did their damage the computer uh, takes over. But they do it as single sequences with each one. And you're like, at some point, you're like, somebody stop putting people in these fucking machines already. (laughs) (laughs) Nowadays, if you if you saw that, you would see it more represented simultaneously where they're doing quick cuts back and forth between each. Okay, everybody's getting in the machine. Okay, the machine's starting. Okay. And just bang, bang, bang through each machine through each of those phases. So not only is the subject matter kind of, you know, prototypical, it's just, they haven't really developed the way that they're going to cover it yet. But the cool thing is they're, they're, uh, they push it on some of it as far as how it's portrayed, like with the mirrors burning stuff and everything. And part of that's a budget, um, part of it's technology of the time, but it's all, you know, it's all fairly well grounded. You know, you don't have giant ants eating people which was you know the big thing back then like radiation can do anything and this are like radiation will kill you i'm like yeah i will (laughs) (laughs) but that and the uh the only thing that really like shocked me was the fact that this robot is flying around with this flamethrower or walking around with this flamethrower on the front end of him like how did nobody be like 
that's a dick. You got to cut that out in the movie. That robot has a dick. <laughs> <laughs> he likes to choke people too. So that's. A... <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. They, they definitely, did have, definitely had a fetish. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, or like you know, come here, I will put my hands on you. Oh, how do you? Oh, how does it feel knowing you're about to die? A little aroused, just to be honest. <laughs> I, I really I, I thoroughly enjoyed the amount of you can tell a lot of love went into making the two robots and and interestingly named Gog and Magog, which I thought was intriguing because which was a nice little kind of throwback because Gog and Magog for those unfamiliar uh, with it has our biblical references and Gog and Magog were the essentially if you go back if you go back into it it was Gog from the land of Magog and supposedly this is an it is an enemy of God. That would rise up as a precursor to the end times. And then once Gog and Magog fall, that will be one of the big events that lead into uh, the end of the world. And so naming these two robots, thinking of characters would be like, oh, what are we going to name the robots? Let's name them Gog and Magog. That's good stuff. And it was like, are you like fucking serious? But in the reality, I like that the I like that tours went that direction. I really, really do. And you can see the love that went into it because it was like create this like remote control base. And then throw everything you could possibly imagine could be on a robot and just throw it all in there. So it's got antennas sticking all the place. It's got like six freaking arms. It's got weapons sticking all the way. And it's just kind of like, uh, uh, uh. And it was like, that is badass, especially for 1954. Uh, so much fun. Yeah. And see, one thing, speaking of Ivan Tours, you can see like his influence start kind of like influence of the movies that he's come up with because he actually started off when during World War II, he actually served with the United States Army Air Corps, pre predecessor to the Air Force, and he worked at the Office of Strategic Services. No, so he was um, OSS. Nice. So he yeah, did a precursor lot. to the CIA. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of like espionage stuff, a lot of experimental with technology, a lot of research and development that he witnessed during the war. So obviously it's going to influence the his influence the movies that he makes afterwards. That's why he went like the scientific route instead of having the giant ants or yeah, radiation does this. No, he knows radiation kills. Okay, that see that that makes a lot of sense. Hey, extra J, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here tonight. See, that makes a lot of sense because all of Ivan Tours, Ivan Tours always put a uh, throughout his career always put a big emphasis on trying to get the science as grounded as possible, and that's what I really dug about this one. And he got better as he went along because in Magnetic Monster and Riders to the Stars, the science was really kind of the very very much science fiction. This one, Gog, I felt was the most grounded. Because it, it as, instead of like, because some people may see it's like, oh, this kind of a precursor to, to Terminator, like, you know, evil AI. But in actuality, it was more about hacking. It was more about, you know, our, the, our reliance on a particular type of technology opens us up to new um, methods in which the enemy, whoever that enemy might be, the nameless, faceless enemy out there, likely communism, would be able to utilize that technology against us because as we increase the technology, they will increase in technology. And so the idea that espionage and these things that go on between countries could result in our ultimate destruction. And I really enjoyed him putting that forward, but it doesn't hit you in the head. He puts more emphasis on the intelligence of the scientists, the work that they do. And yes, this is dangerous stuff, but you know, being the fifties, it's going to being 1954, it's going to have a happy ending. We, we can expect that. But I like that he saw it in that light, that he saw, wow, like this technology could easily get away from us if we are not careful in that respect. 
and he saw it coming. And that's why I dug this one so much. It is. So it's the thing is this. If you're into 1950s sci-fi, you'll enjoy it. It's a fun movie. It is when they're going after them with the flamethrowers. It's just, a, it's a, it's a funny scene. Um, but I can understand if you're not into 1950s cinema and you may not gravitate towards it, but it is fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I th- oh, it, go, go ahead. I was going to say too, it's not like the entire time he's down on technology. Either. That's one thing you tend to see in anything where it's discussed technology in a kind of apocalyptic light. Because he does insert here and there, and he ends it with an up note about science, about, you know, he's like, be able to look down on this little planet of ours, and it has a certain nobility to itself. So it's really, it's a matter of being responsible and putting in the right hands. And that's one thing he pushes too. And he pushes a little bit too much sometimes with the techno babble um, when he's talking about the various devices throughout the facility, but he's trying to show that, like, you don't need technology to do everything because that's what ultimately makes them vulnerable. Yes. I, I honestly I think Torres was ahead of his time. And another thing that I thought was really cool, which kind of surprised me because this was my first time diving into this trilogy, was I saw little bits and pieces that were taken and utilized by so many other big productions at the time. Like Star Trek took from this, Star Trek Productions took from this. But I think what was really interesting, and I'm going to throw this out there. I may be completely wrong. And good to see you, Zero. Thanks for popping in. Appreciate you being here. I think the, the whole sequence at the very end when they're taking on, when uh, when Gog is ready to go, Magog has already been taken out. And Gog is there and Gog is fighting off and they're trying to you know, take it from two different sides. And they're using the flamethrowers against it. That sequence where he's like, ah, oh, you know, I've got it, I got it. Oh, the, the, there's a problem with it. He comes in, he uses his flamethrower, it doesn't work. That sequence was util- I think was utilized directly by John Carpenter for the thing. Because one person having the flamethrower and running in and trying to hit it, and all of a sudden, you know, it's not working. And he's like, you, you know, t- you take care of it. He runs out and is like, oh, there's something wrong with the line, takes it off, and then ah, then he gets killed. And then the other dude comes up and and then attacks it. That was exactly the sequence between McCready and Windows taking on the thing in the middle. They, they, like, exactly. And I think John Carpenter may have taken it from that and, and run with it. Because it's an awesome sequence, you know? And I think, you know, there's that inspiration there. And see, I kind of thought of inspiration for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where you have uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character utilizing a flamethrower. Because the thing is, when watching this film, those are real flamethrowers. This isn't like yes. a CGI. You have the actual <laughs> actor with a flamethrower <laughs> on set. And I started thinking about Leonardo DiCaprio's character with the flamethrower. And he's like, yeah, that's one of the best things. I had to, I had to actually use the flamethrower. And then, of course, he kept it in the shed in the backyard. So it just kind of dawned on me for a second. It made me think of it. I thought it was really, really good. I was really, really impressed. Um, I loved Ivan Torres' approach of – of addressing that which kind of like a you know, that which kind of like freaked out Americans at the time, especially what was going on. Science was advancing so quickly that people were, you know, were really afraid it was going to get ahead of us. And then, of course, with the Red Scare going on, Korea at the time was happening, that this was a particularly intense time. And looking at the ways that, you know, basically positing a scenario in which, you know, communists or Russia or whoever might be able to get their way in, you know, by maybe even like implant, you know, planting someone into what we do in the movie where they have someone that during the construction of Novak, a remote device was installed in there, you know, surreptitiously so that they could gain access to our system. 
And I like that Tours went there and presented this really intriguing concept that even today we still are concerned about. This is legit technology is like a Taurus was ahead, ahead of his time. He saw this. I loved how he eschewed violence for intel for, for the brains of the story. And I really, really dug it. I think um, even if it's 1954, I think a lot of people will dig this one. You can see the love that went into it, the intelligence that went into it. And it's a, a, a stark reminder of what was going on in America at that time. If you look around, he's like, what this thing reflected of us. And that's an important period that shouldn't be forgotten. Post-World War II, America's at a certain state. Russia is there. What's going to happen? Space race is about to really, really kick off. And technology is increasing exponentially. And who knows what's, when the future is uncertain. When killer robots were, a yeah, were, were possible. It's kind of like, holy shit. You know, there were advertisements, flying cars, you know, robots in every home. People were freaking out. So I really, really dug this one. It was uh, uh, almost nostalgic in a, to a degree, which I really, really dug. Yeah, the uh, but something ahead, which the, the, the title is almost misleading because really it's not Gog that is the biggest threat through it all, which I think that was intelligent marketing because it's like kill a robot, which is what drew people in. But if he had been kind of, you know, cheaper about it or just gone for the standard movie of the era, it would have been nothing but the robot massacring people through the entire thing. Just, you know, fire dick everywhere. But <laughs> he, it was, he drew him in with the robot, you know, that's your cell up front and then kind of walked them through everything else and um, showed that, you know, the you know these aren't bloody murders this is just technology gone wrong people aren't responsible for it which the the guy in in charge of facility straight up says everybody here's lives are in my hand they're dying left and right and i'm like you need to get fired <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it and uh but I got I got to ask I got to ask the audience i want to ask the audience since this is the third installment of the final installment in a trilogy of an Ivan, the Ivan Torres trilogy, the uh, the OSI trilogy. I'd like to ask the audience of the three of them: Magnetic Monster, Riders in the Sky, and of course, uh, Riders to the Stars. Sorry, Riders to the Stars and Gog. What do you think was the best installment of the OSI trilogy? Recognizing that they did get better and more scientifically grounded as they came as they went along, and you know, like you know, Torres really had a good handle on it. But what do you think was the best installment of the three? I know some people may say Magnetic Monster, but I really loved the third one. First time I've ever seen a trilogy go one, two, three. Just increase as each one goes along. But let us know down in the comments below or, of course, at weekendhorror@gmail.com, or here, here in the live chat. And Travis Brown says, I don't know. I never seen them. Well, then you, sir, should, should, should check out the, uh, the uh, community tab because that's where we post what movies we're going to talk about every week. Yeah, all week in advance. I was going to say, I've only seen Gog, so. I have to go back and watch the other two. Yeah, the other two are pretty. Magnetic Monster was was actually pretty entertaining. Very, it was much better than Robot Monster. Remember when we watched that one about the mm -hmm. the the gorilla thing with the with the, the the like the diving helmet head and the antenna and shit. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> it said yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see. Sarcasm says they never actually said which enemy gained power over Novak. They did. Oh, they did it. That's because it's true. They never actually specify who the enemy was. We just have this enemy plane 
that's in the air, kind of like above the base, that's transmitting these signals. So we don't know who the bad guys are. You mean the enemy MIG fighter jet that just happens to be flying overhead? Ex exactly. MIG fighter jet? The unmarked, the unmarked fighter jet has no detailing whatsoever. So we have no idea what country that came from. With sarcasm is positing, they did it themselves. Ooh, as a Ooh. test. Belco experiment. Ah, I love that. <laughs> I actually love that. Thank you so much. Thank you, sarcasm. I like that. I like that conspiracy theory there. Oh, yes. All right. So let's jump on to our next one. The the Oscar winner of the night. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> What do we got, Eugene? That's on Aaron. Aaron's next. Yeah, this is me. I oh, shit, it's Aaron. My bad. Six. I gave it to Aaron. Anything in the <laughs> woods is Aaron. Anything in the woods, you know, out there in the middle of nowhere, that, that's Aaron's. The woods don't fucking scare me, though. I'm like three <laughs> feet from them. <laughs> from June 6, 2013, we have Willow Creek. All right, so written and directed by Bobcat Goldthwait and starring Bryce Johnson and Alexis Gilmore. <laughs> it's pretty much exactly what you saw in the trailer. Um, a couple decide that they're going to go out to try and go out in the area where the original Bigfoot uh, film was recorded or in that general vicinity. Um, they the take Madison a back route to film. it. Yeah, I, yeah. it's... I'm not even gonna start on that damn thing, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they take a back route to it and uh, encounter something, somebody that starts terrorizing them in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, I don't know if you. I, so I can't tell if milking or my connection okay. died. <laughs> It no, looks like you might be delaying. You no, might be delaying a little. Nothing bit. got real. But I will. I've been. I will say this. It says zero. Uh, yeah. Zero says you see. You see how there's no tension. That's the movie. There actually was a little bit of tension to this one. Juggernaut Jared Reed says this is this the prequel to Blair Witch Project? And then the uh, the obvious Reddit comments are coming in. Um, Circus is Blair Bigfoot. Charlie Welch is Blair Squatch. <laughs> and then, and then uh, Tesla Reed says I bet Johnny hates it. Uh, Josh Lee says <laughs> Meh, camping is overrated anyways. Um, <laughs> Jeremy Duncan said Aaron had a Eugene moment. Absolutely. So this, uh, this wasn't okay. Uh, okay, I will, I will, I will say first and foremost, get the polisher the ready. It's not really a polish, but I will say that that Bobcat, the director Bobcat Goldthwaite, you know, uh, you know, char character actor extraordinary, you know, one of the one of the great ones, you know, oh, you know, going back to Police Academy, and he was a fantastic. I mean, I loved him in Scrooge. Um, he has a good approach to filmmaking. I like what he, I like what he did with this particular film, but one thing that was smart and I, cause this is a, a Bigfoot found footage film, but what's interesting and the one shining thing I, or the two things I, I will say, I'll say about this one. One, I loved his use of legitimate people in this, you know, like, you know, the, like, like people who you know, were out there, you know, like working like that ever, almost everybody, they, only one of the people I think they do an interview with is an act is, is like an actor. Everyone else actually works in that area or like runs some sort of business or knows about Bigfoot lore. So he got real people involved that were screen ready and able to actually, you know, do, give it a good, solid performance on screen. I really like that. And plus, I thought it was really cool. He never shows a Bigfoot. And he leaves it ambiguous as to whether or not this is a Bigfoot or these are people 
who are fucking with them because they're warned multiple times. There are people that live out there in that area that don't want to be fucked with, that don't want to be bothered. And you're going out there in that territory, you know, and, and like he says, there's, some, there's people out there that, that grow marijuana. They don't want you on their land. They don't want you fucking with them. There's people that just live out there because they want to get away from society. They don't want visitors. They don't want neighbors. And then you stumbling around out there might result in, you know, someone come along and being pissed about it. And so I like the ambiguity that this wasn't necessarily a monster film, but there's a theme there just going out in the wilderness and winding up gone. So I dug that. I like that. I thought that was a smart approach to, you know, because there are many found footage Bigfoot films out there. And most of them try to be like the Bigfoot's like, oh, I'm a monster. And here I am. This one I dug, I was more grounded in reality, which I, I, I dug. I thought was a smart move. I think that he did this, uh, this, this type of uh, found footage was done correctly. He approached it intelligently, and I like what uh, Goldthwaite brought to it. Yeah, he, uh, he, did, he did a really good job. So I would say his one downfall in the movie is he took too long to start building on the elements that occur in the woods towards the final scare. Like, giving all that time to the people in the town didn't do as much to set up as stories it should. Like, that should have been Act 1, and it felt like it was Act 1 and 2 um, going into it. But on the opposite side, this is one of the few, like, ones in the forest that actually kind of, I'm like, okay, I've, I've been there to a degree. Like, for one, I've gone, we go fishing, we would hit, there's a place, and it's literally a dirt road right off an interstate, a high-speed uh, inter- high area of the interstate between North Carolina and Tennessee, and you slow down just enough to hit this dirt road, and you go back to fish, and we went back that way, and we passed two guys. They look shady, they look funky. We always carried a firearm when we were out there, just in case of snakes or anything else, because it's back there. And we got that pistol out on the way back because there are legitimately people that it's not even their land. They don't own it. They will go into state-owned territory that isn't used very much and put down plants because I've seen an area. It was a path back to where there's a suspected grow area. Um, This is another hike. We're going down that way. And we turned back because there is a pot plant that had just fallen out of probably what was a a group of them, one of the, you know, planter sets, and it just set roots and started fucking growing. It just (laughs) grows here. And the other one, a funnier story, is so we were out at this campground, and it's a civilized campground. It's it's state-owned or federally owned and maintained. They've got concrete drives up to the areas. They're not too close, but fairly close, but they have skunks. And sometimes you get trouble out, and I'm laying there, going to sleep, and I start hearing a scritch, scritch on the outside of my tent. And I'm not like some big thing, some big monster, but I'm like, if I roll over and hit the side of this tent while I'm sleeping, scare the shit out of this skunk, he's going to spray the hell out of me, and I am going to stink. <laughs> and this went on with a scritching for like 45 minutes to an hour. I'm sitting there like, why won't he just go away? And finally, I realized if I peek really carefully at the top of my tent and look out, I can see, and it's like, goddamn bug this big that has just been sitting there on the outside of my tent i'm like so the little shit it can if you're not used to the woods or you're in an area where like you know people get up to stuff it can unnerve the hell out of you and you're like well not sleeping tonight see the thing about this film and especially when you talk about the unseen monster in the found Mm -hmm. footage is that i've seen it already it came out in 1999. 
Oh, Blair Witch Project. Yeah, that's like I've like I've seen that. It would have been better if maybe this is a hybrid film because I'm sitting there watching this film and they have the camera on because it's found footage. You have to have the camera on right. and the camera has a light because you have to be able to see them at night. And I'm like, why isn't the camera pointed away? Why are you going to have your light source pointed at you versus what you're trying to see in this area? Um, I just I couldn't. I just I couldn't. Um I'm not a huge fan of found footage to begin with. So maybe if this was something like a hybrid thing where you can get like their point of view sometimes with the camera and sometimes it's just shot like a normal movie, that could have been interesting. And at that point, you don't even have to see, still reveal if it was Bigfoot or people or whatever gets them. But having that same, but having like people lost in the woods trying to find something that gets them that you don't see that's Blair Witch Project and Blair Witch Project is one of the biggest horror films to ever come out you can't in terms of the found footage genre you can't follow it it's just one of those things that you just can't follow if you want to do a found footage film, you could do something else like Afflicted or would like the Vicious Brothers in the Insane Asylum. There's other things you can do, Wreck, so forth. But this concept is just owned by Blair Witch. So without showing the monster, it immediately falls into the category of the ripoff. And ah, that, that's well, it. They've got the system, and Stephen King, I always forget the terminology he uses, but basically you're going from knowing about the monster to hearing the monster, to seeing the monster, to encountering the monster. And the best ones stop at hearing the monster because you always – it's the same category. It's always leave them wanting more. You should never fully flesh out your mystery because it stops it becoming scary once you flesh it out. And it gets rationalized so badly it's unbelievable or rationalized so much that it's commonplace. So uh, if he had crimped that front end of them in town at cafes and motels, crimped that down to like act one, so the first third of it, then the second third is what we encountered most of the way through. Obviously not them getting killed because that cuts it, maybe kidnapped. You know, there's different directions you can go, but start showing the abodes or other signs, flesh it out. You still don't even have to show it like at all if you're creative enough or you could show it in just quick sweeps. Um, but if you're going to insinuate that this is, you know, people that just live there, or if these are pot farmers, which is the lowest denominator, and you kind of got to go in more of an action direction with that, or if you're going with Bigfoot that's, you know, kidnapping people, give, show how it's happening, give it some depth and some meaning and some background rather than just taking two-thirds to kind of develop a non-applicable environment and then bang everything happens within the last third of the movie it was a little interesting i mean uh i felt it kind of like the one thread that was dropped it may have been done intentionally was the idea that throughout the entire movie you're you know gold way to setting up this uh you you constantly setting up this kind of like side story where you have like there's these missing posters these missing you know, these missing uh, person posters that are like seen everywhere so like you know there's on light poles or in somebody's office or on the wall you know on like the community board and so we keep popping up with this and then and it's all the same person and then when they're in the woods and they have that final they have the big final encounter before you know the 
you know, whatever happens to them, because we never get a confirmation, we see that semi-naked woman that they come across. That was the that was the crying person that, that they came across. And we see them for a brief moment. It's a it's a person. But then of course that's when he gets grabbed and then the camera gets gets dragged through the the obligatory you know found footage ending where we don't really see what happens we just hear the screams um i thought that there was kind of like yeah the zero says there was no setup for the final part i thought it was a it was a little on the loose side it was kind of like we're gonna throw this in there just to like make people think and i get what goldthwaite was trying to do in a sense trying to like you know do something a little bit different but i do act i actually have to agree with eugene's assessment on that one is that the minute you don't show the monster and you leave it ambiguous as to what is going on, like in Blair Witch, is there an actual witch monster, or did they do this in themselves with, like, mass hysteria? Did they work themselves up into it, get themselves lost? Or were there even people out in the woods, like, living in the Black in the black Woods that were fucking with them? You know, they're like, because they there's the sense that they get into town, and people don't want them there. So the idea that they go out there and they do this, and, you know, people might go, you know, the, the locals may go out there and fuck with them. It's all kind of ambiguous. Yeah. So... It does fall in. It gets kind of swallowed up in that black hole that is the Blair Witch, where everything is just a rote copy of that. I think Goldweight tried to do something a little different, um, and I see. I could see where he was thinking. Uh, you know, that's hard to do, though. Very, very difficult to break out of that. But I will say it was entertaining uh, to say the least. There were some good moments. I'm a. I'm an Eagle Scout. I've spent a lot of time in the woods. I spent a lot of time in extremely rural areas with like no trace. You know, zero impact camping, where you just don't have a you don't bring, you're not glamping, you're not bringing a shit ton of gear, you bring what you need. And then you kind of realize in certain situations, like Aaron was describing, when you're out there and you don't have much, you've got your, and like, there's just a little sheet of mylar in between you and whatever's out there. It can be pretty fucking nerve wracking, especially if someone comes upon your campsite in the middle of the night and starts messing with you, you know, like throwing stuff at your tent or pushing a hand into it or just walking around your tent at night. You know, is it an animal? Is it not? You know, whatever. And uh, been in situations, you know, especially like at, at Philmont, where there could be bears out there, or 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 buffalo. You know, walking around, you have no idea in the middle of the night, so it's freaky. But uh, I like what he tried to capture. It was a good environment. It was, I mean, it was, it, the the atmosphere was solid. I I can relate to it because like I've been I've been in that situation where it's like, what the fuck was that noise out there? When you know, when you're young and you haven't been camping a lot. And I thought he did did it well. Plus, the ambiguity was a nice change of pace. Instead of saying, "Oh, it's a Bigfoot," and all of a sudden we get that the camera flash, where the camera moves really, really quick, and you get the kind of ambiguity, like "Oh, Bigfoot face," and then everybody's dead. So, which is which is you know, what the formula demands nowadays. I like that he went kind of ambiguous. He tried to do it differently. Eh, it works sometimes. It doesn't. Uh, and on kind of to look at something in the same vein, obviously different environment, but still the isolation the kind of camping aspect if you look at devil's pass the one about the Aloft pass incident and uh i believe it was russia i know it was the ussr i can't remember which country but it was in the, the that went mountains. all yeah. the yeah that went all the way like it it showed you it slowly eased in the creatures but then it showed them to you and then it told you how they got there it was interesting but you know, it could have left a little more mystery. So you do have a spectrum you can work with there. Like Blair Witch didn't use it up, but it's the same thing as anything. If you're going to go the same route, like start on the same route, you better find a different way to do it or you're just going to fail. Because it's Blair Witch hit with so much impact because the mar viral marketing campaign did a lot for it. 
it hadn't been done before in quite that way. It, it, that wasn't the first found footage, but that was the first major one. Um, and it was the first one that had been kind of done in the way that it was done. Um, so you can't recreate the social environment in which it was created. So you better figure out a way to create an in-film environment that tops it or at least equals it. I'll give him credit at least. The character the characters were decent. I I liked the uh the uh yeah. I liked the chemistry between the leads. I thought that they were strong. They depicted a couple that was in a relationship. Um the whole like, you know, he's you know, he's out there and he, he proposes to her and she kind of like, "Oh, you know, I'm not ready, but but we can move in." That felt a little forced, but I get, you know, trying to drive it, but they didn't and I felt that they didn't need it. It was unnecessary. Their banter in the car as kind of like, you know, the guy who wants to do a documentary and the, you know, the love of his life who be kind of like begrudgingly, he was like, I'm here to support you and do this. I love the back and forth they had. It was well acted and they it felt legit. It felt legit. And I because sometimes with found footage, it can come off as really, really forced. But I dug this one. They kept it in kind of the documentary style instead of like trying to sell a show, very similar to Grave Encounters. But I really, I there were things I liked. It didn't put me off like a lot of found footage does. And see, I can appreciate what, what Gold Goldthwait was doing there. See, and I have to agree with Zero here is that it did, there's a lot of found footage type movies out there and it didn't expand on anything. It didn't add really anything to the genre. And when you look at like Blair Witch, people try to capture that. Blair Witch, like Sir, what Sir Catherine said, Blair Witch is lightning in a bottle. If that movie came out 10 years before, 10 years after, it wouldn't have worked. Blair Witch, you, they just happen to get the right idea at the right time with the right execution. Yeah. And it just, and it worked. And even after the success of Blair Witch Project, they went on to do several other things, but it was, they were never big. They never became like the next James Wan in terms of like horror producers or horror directors or the next Jason Blum or they, they never ever able came up. It was like, it's like the one hit wonder where it's like you had the one song that happened to come out at the right time with the right hook that just captured everybody. And then you can listen to that song five years later and go like, was that really a good song to begin with? Now I'm saying that with Blair, which was a bad film because Blair, which is a good film, but it, it was Blair Witch was more about the whole experience because then you had like the Book of Shadows, not the movie Book of Shadows, but people they had a Book of Shadows website that came in. You had um, you had this companion stuff that came with. They made they even made like a just like a twelve or thirteen minute little documentary. So when you got the VHS, you could get a little documentary companion with it. So it's this whole experience that sold the Blair Witch Project. And the thing is, is this. You can't redo it. You just can't. It's just it's it's done. You're not gonna beat it. Just do something else. Right. Yeah. And I do want to say hello moment. to I do want to say hello to Christo Kiernan who uh, jumped into the chat. Good to see you, Christo and McKinnon Mitchell as well. McKinnon Mitchell's in the house as uh, the guy who wants to make a documentary and the girl who begrudgingly supports him. Is this a found footage movie or uh, is this found footage movie a horror movie or a spy cam of my home address? <laughs> Good point. Yes, because McKinnon is a big documentarian. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, go ahead, Aaron. Yeah. Um. Damn, man, you made me lose my thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say oh, somebody, yeah. did, somebody did ask. Uh, it was Juggernaut Jared Reed asked. He brings up like I thought the found footage Hell House LLC franchise was interesting. I also dug uh, Hell House. I thought I mean the whole trilogy: Hell House, Hell House Two, and Hell House Three: Abaddon. 
Um, I found it to be really intriguing because it's essentially like found footage in a haunted house. And I like it because of the constraints of filming within that place. Found footage outside is just Blair Witch. It's, it's what it is. If you do found footage in the woods, it's going to be Blair Witch straight up all the way. Things like like Hell House LLC or uh, Grave Encounters, where you go Grave Encounters is a little bit different because you have a massive space that's maze-like and changes on you. So you're essentially a retelling of the story of the labyrinth. And then you have people running around with cameras in that one. But Hell House LLC is intriguing because it adds a dynamic of the characters themselves and what they're doing and the people who were there. And then, of course, all of the un slowly uncovering the backstory as it goes to the trilogy. And so I, I enjoyed that one because... They can always do kind of new and interesting things because you have this dilapidated old building, but people are constantly bringing new things into it, which I thought was really, really cool. So I like, I think they I thought they did it well, but the acting as well is what sold that was the characterizations, um, the people that were running around it. I thought that was what made that strong. Same thing with, uh, with Willow Creek. Well, uh, yeah, what I was saying, I remember it's basically, it's a magic moment. We've talked about it before. Like, I think the biggest one I can think of is Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is a great movie. Ghostbusters would have done well, but Ghostbusters would not have like had the cultural a, a bomb impact that it had had it come a few years before, a few years after. It just when it hits at that right moment in the way move, especially in the way movies are progressing, what people are in the mood for, what can be done. Um, and then that's too, you know, downside of it is that's when people try the company studios try to smash in the sequel. Ghostbusters two wasn't bad, but it wasn't nearly as good as Ghostbusters one. But it was also made more enjoyable by how quickly it came in after, and the fact that it still had some of that afterglow from Ghostbusters. Um, so when you try to duplicate that, which we've seen, you know, you get one bad movie, one bad Ghostbusters movie. You got one that, that was good. But it still didn't have the huge fanfare of either of the original two because it was out of its time. McKenna Mitchell brings up, has Weekend Horror talked about The Deep House? Bad movie, but awesome extension of found footage. I enjoyed The Deep House. I really did. But more from a technical perspective instead of the storyline. Technically, Deep House was fantastic because the entire, almost the entire film, like I would say 80% of the movie, was shot completely underwater. And it was designed, it was like literally scuba divers going down to investigate the sunken the sunken house that's in this lake. And they're going down to it. And of course, ghosts are in there. But the whole movie takes place underwater. And the camera, you never deal with the idea that with what Eugene said, where you're turning the camera to yourself in order to get your reaction. The, the lights on their helmets are going forward and they're talking to each other. So anytime you see another actor's face is when the one actor is looking directly at them. That's when you get that. And it switches between the two of them as they're recording, which I enjoy that. But I enjoyed it predominantly for the for the technical aspect. Shooting your entire movie underwater, incredibly difficult. And I really enjoyed it. You know, essentially creating your haunted house and sinking it at the bottom of a lake. That's pretty badass to me. That, that's an intensive production. And I thought that was really, really cool. They got that entire town near here that's sunk. It's near Fontana Dam. They use it for in dreams. Most of it's still there. It's from when they flooded the Tennessee Valley for power, and you can go scuba diving. But I would not want to have to shoot sequences in there because I hear <laughs> tales of people all the time getting hung up on stuff and having to cut themselves loose or die. <laughs> <laughs> Forget taking a crew down there. All right, so the question we've got for the audience is, what is your favorite cryptid horror movie? You can let us know at weekendhorrorgmail.com uh, or drop in the comments or the live chat. 
He's trying to think because I don't know. What's you, Eugene? Ooh, favorite no. cryptid? That's actually that's a good question. Favorite cryptic horror film? You talking about like something where it's not fully explained ever? Yeah, like crypt, like like cryptozoology. The, so like big feet, like Bigfoot or Mothman or uh, a chupacabra. chupacabra. Or, <laughs> it's like chupacabra because it or translates that, to goat sucker. Or like you know, the, like the Jersey like the Jersey Devil or the Michigan Dog Man or you know. I would have to think about it because it's not a horror genre that I'm like super into. So I don't have like a go-to like, oh, this is my favorite cryptic horror film because a lot of them, a lot of the ones I've watched are can be kind of lackluster. Okay. Kind of because I'm like, oh, well, they're going into the Chupacabra or they're going to the Bigfoot. And the thing is a lot of them, and I hate to say it, or like the sci-fi or asylum films. So then it's like Bigfoot <laughs> versus giant squid and you're just like... <laughs> Bigfoot. You just gave him another idea, man. You I gave know, him another they, one. They're going to make it tomorrow. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Zero says Skinwalkers. Skinwalkers is very, very popular. Uh, even though they're rarely done like the, like, the, like the actual legend. They're they're rarely done like that. Mostly they're pretty much you know werewolves. Um, mm -hmm. Let me see here. Uh, McKinnon, McKinnon Mitchell says The Empty Man. Very cool. Uh, Zero also said Wendigos. Wendigo. I like Wendigo movies too. Wendigo movies pretty bad. Oh, like the fuck antlers. Ravenous. Antlers there's a good one. Ravenous was oh, Ravenous yeah. was excellent, and I also loved Antlers. I loved Del Toro's, you know, take on on the Wendigo. It was really good stuff. And, and you mentioned uh, Mothman Prophecies. That's a good movie. Mothman Prophecies was solid. I enjoyed it. And yeah, I liked, that's a I liked Mothman. So <laughs> let me see. Uh, Rodella Sam says a surprisingly effective Bigfoot movie. M Night's The Village. Really, The Village. <laughs> really? Uh, Zero says Antlers. Yeah, Antlers was good. Juggernaut Jared Reed said The Last Broadcast. Very cool. JC Cooper said Windigo. Yeah, Windigos. Jeremy Duncan says, No, not werewolves. Skinwalkers wear an animal and become said animal. Uh, the, yeah, the, the Native American legend is really intriguing. It's, just, it's rarely ever conveyed well on film. Typically, they just go into like the were, like, like a were character, like the werewolf, like typically werewolves. But the idea that it's a shaman that can take the form of different animals and I, I've never seen it done exactly like that. I think the uh, I'd say the closest I've ever seen would probably be the movie Wolfen. Wolfen was done really, really well, um, but didn't. But that didn't actually bring up Skinwalker idea. That didn't actually you know touch on that. But uh, but yeah, it's tough. Uh, Sir Cab says anyone making a cryptid Plus. film is trying to bank on the legend, not the movie. So disdain for all. Ouch. Yeah, well, in line with that, I mean, you, when you got Skinwalker and Wendigo, especially Skinwalker, since that documentary, the main documentary came out, and a few side documentaries associated with it, um, oh, there is Ranch. like a, yeah, there's yeah. a deep lore associated with it, and it's like, to become that, you have to stoop to utter depravity and destroy things that you love, so it's not just a monster, it is a moral of... Like what you can become when you just not only turn your morals loose, but turn completely against them and try to destroy yourself. And it it's the prime example of why, you know, because people argue back and forth about cultural appropriation. Well, in this case, you damaged your your the depth of the movie, the possible depth of it by just ditching the cultural associations like you should have explored that more. That's my opinion. 
I will say this um, before we jump on to the next one. Uh, L-Zero brings up the Wretched. Uh, Strange Lex, 790. Good to see you, Strange. Thanks so much for being here. Freight Edges as well. Good to see you. Says the Man Beast. Apparently some nights after I get really drunk, the neighbors say they see a half-naked Man Beast walking around the streets making a grunting noise. I've never seen the Man Beast. I like what you did there. Very good. Very good. And I will say, um, a new one that recently came out this year was a horror film uh, called Unwelcome, which was set in Ireland and featured red caps. Uh, which are in uh, mm. one of the uh, one of the she one of the she in Irish uh, le- in Irish legend. So, mm. but that was an interesting little horror film. I kind of dug that one. Soaks their cap in blood. And that's why it is red. All right, now sorry, now it's Eugene's turn now because now Eugene gets the <laughs> gets the big. Now we get the now we get the Oscar the Oscar winner. <laughs> So now we are we are talking about Gremlins, which was released June eighth, nineteen eighty four. Roll it. <laughs> so there you go. You have Gremlins, directed by Joe Dante, starring Zach Galligan, Phoebe Cates, Hoyt Axton, Francis Lee McCain, and Polly Holiday. And of course, you have executive producer Steven Spielberg, who was behind uh, Gremlins. And if you can't already tell, you basically you have a salesman looking for a special gift for his son. He goes into a strange Chinese shop, picks up a mogwai with three rules. And of course, the three rules are broken and hilarity ensues. And I'm going to go with hilarity on this one because it's... The one thing about this film that has Gremlins lasting so long is that it really doesn't fall into a particular genre because though it has horror elements, then there's some funny elements, there's some action elements, there's some family elements. And I like when I was watching thing about Joe Dante when he was talking about it is he didn't want Gremlins to fall into a genre. And that's why it's lasted so long. He's like, you know what? I want to take pieces of everything. And I'm going to throw it together. And I'm going to create something that stands out on its own. And honestly, I think he nailed it. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. The movie, this movie is in the reason stood the test of time. This is literally brilliance firing on all cylinders. It, I mean, everything top to bottom. Executive produced by Steven Spielberg, directed by Joe Dante, the the, the feud the, who would be the legend Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus, by Christopher Columbus, who wrote Home Alone, uh, who wrote uh, not only Home Alone but also Adventures in Babysitting, Home Alone Two, um, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire. You know, this is. So many legends that were at the beginnings of their career, not to mention the lovely Phoebe Cates, who we all fell in love with. And you know the scene I'm talking about. And of course, um, Zach Galligan and the brilliant animatronics, you know, as far as not only Gizmo, who became like the commodity of the early 80s. I dressed as Gizmo once for for Halloween. And of course, the gremlins themselves, uh, everything about the film, from its dramatic moments to its comedic moments to its legitimately scary moments. And even Fred Edges says, seriously, I seen this when I was way too young, scared the fuck out of me, made me hate Christmas for years. There were some frightening moments in this one. The the Christmas tree sequence, I remember affecting me quite, quite a lot because, you know, you can't see into the Christmas tree and that's freaky deaky. So, yeah. I, I loved it. And Brodino Los Angeles says it leaned into the text Avery Madness in the perfect amount. Absolutely did. Absolutely did. I loved it because there's not – from the score to the production to the acting to the writing, everything on this, nothing but legends behind it, the absolute best you can you can get. I can't think of a better way of – like it's one of the great one of the great films. And I love that it's genreless too. 
Well, the the story that the part that messes with me the most is the story about her father because it's just so like it's like where the fuck did that come from? Why is it there? And it turns out they wanted to strip that out, and Joe Dante wouldn't let them. And I'm like, but that's kind of the it has an almost surreality to it because they toned it down. The original was going to be way more violent. Like there was his his mother got killed, and her head came rolling down the stairs. It ate the dog. They ate the dog. They ate. Uh, ate for, I forgot who else, but they they toned it down more to kind of fit. A little, little bit more family, but it was just right on that top edge of you know what you would let most kids see, and I think it's got this weird juxtaposition of all this horrible stuff going on, and you've got Christmas, so you've got the lighting on it alone is brilliant because you've got the Christmas lights versus a lot of really well used lighting and darkness. When you're outside, you've got the snow that does a good job of bouncing light, but still, again, there's darkness, and it's it's that way the whole way through because it's a horror comedy, and it's when they were getting really big, and those are just alongside each other the whole time through. So this terrible shit's happening, and you're like, ha, ah, they killed somebody, but I hope they die. Uh, so oh, okay. <laughs> the, the lady, the lady in the electric chair, the in the stair chair, that that one is just. Because it's so perfect. Because the legend of the Gremlins, it, which is something that derives from World War II, way you know, from England, when when shit would go wrong and there was no explanation as to why it would go wrong, and then the idea that them fucking with that chair and then like keep like, I don't even know, like put, you know, punting her out the damn window, <laughs> like, it was like the shit? <laughs> fucking, it was it, that was a laugh of that was a laugh of. Like I said it was that brilliant moment, that brilliant blend between really really scary and and and, and drop down funny. And you know, you mentioned that it used to be darker. Like, like if you imagine, like it was more extreme. And the idea, because I know that there was the they like the gremlins ate Billy's dog and they murdered his mother, cut her head off, and threw it down the stairs. And the sequence where they they but they actually bust into a McDonald's and eat the customers instead. Mm -hmm. There was been a mass murder scene that took place in this film. There was a lot of extreme shit. Plus, they actually intended originally for for Gizmo to turn into Stripe. The stripe yeah. wouldn't be, and it, you know, uh, so we would actually lose Gizmo, and he would become the monster himself. And I think that that would definitely would have been much more intense, and quite I think that would have hit children a lot harder because that ugh, that would have been so you know, lose your lose your hair. The thing that is like, oh he's so cute, it's, you know it's Gizmo, he's adorable, and then all of a sudden he turns into a you know this beast. What that would have said uh, definitely much much darker than the filmmakers intended. See, that well, was and it actually, killed the marketability too, because they could not have sold that toy. See, and that was it, because that was actually Steven Spielberg's idea was to keep Gizmo like a good guy throughout, ah. because Spielberg knew the marketability of it. Like, oh, we're gonna get toys off of this. Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I've he, got one <laughs> right there. He's in right there above my case. I don't know if you, if people in the live chat can see him. But that's the old one from 1984, the oh. uh, the original the well, the original one from 1984 sitting up there on. Uh, is it plastic or is it fuzzy? It's fuzzy. I see, see. We had the plastic one, and they did not do well over time because you know anything with rubber in it, latex just degrades over time. But it, that's and we talked about that too with Spielberg. Is they love to bring him in on something like with poltergeist and toby hooper like if they've got something they really like need to keep getting reined in they tend to bring spielberg into it because he's got a good 
bounce. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the, the original one. Back in the day, I love it when guys, yeah, Angela our, found him for me, and I was she was like, "Oh, I've got to get this for him." Made by uh, Applause, and uh, this was 1984. That's yeah, him. ours was an original from that era, but it was hard plastic. It was probably like the ghetto version because we didn't buy. My parents didn't buy us expensive toys. <laughs> 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 but yeah, Spielberg, he um, because we he. Which he took, and we talked about that. We talked about that a little bit. Um, is he didn't get hired in the normal way. He took a tour of Universal. They and then figured out how to get off the ride at the studio, and then sneak onto the lot. And he just set up in an office and started learning. And eventually, the president of the company saw Amblin, the first movie he really did, the first series movie he liked so much, took him under his wing. And he was part of that big group, that kind of brat pack of directors that included included Scorsese and De Palma, George Lucas. But he became known as the guy who could make a good movie. He made good artistic decisions, but he also looked out for the studio. So he's a good combination of profitability and artistry. And that's, I mean, that's where he made his name because that's the thing. At the same time, or around the same time, it may have been at the same time. He was working on Twilight Zone, so um, obviously they trusted him with some more adult material than this. Or, but um, they, he is the one who took and defended um, Dante, keeping in the story about her dad dying. He was like, I trust his artistic vision, so we're going to go with it. So he's always been known for having a really good balance of, of handling the studio and handling whether it be his film or somebody else's film that he's producing or co-directing, um, keeping that balance there until he turns out a good product most of the time. And see, so you bring up a really good point about Steven Spielberg and why he's been so successful is because he has been a safe director. I don't mean safe as in not take risks, but he's a safe director that's like a, okay, we can bank on him. He will look out for our interest he will turn out a product. Most of his films are family friendly until they get a little bit later in his career so that we can go with him. He's going to produce something that the massive amount of people can enjoy. Because, for example, if you have the premise, hey, these people visit a park of dinosaurs, these dinosaurs get out and start terrorizing, eating people. Most people would picture a rated R film and gory right. moments of dinosaurs tearing people apart. And then he makes it where Jurassic Park doesn't even feel like a horror film. It feels like a family action film, even though it's 100% a horror film. And that being one of the biggest films of all time. So Steven Spielberg was always a safe choice, giving him just about any kind of idea that he can run with. And you know, you're going to get something that's going to get mass appeal. I would say very similar to the, uh, the successful uh, formula that worked with Poltergeist. You know, the uh, Toby Hooper coming in and directing Poltergeist. And then, of course, you know, with with, uh, you know, Spielberg behind him, kind of like with that that necessary support that he may need, given how, you know, it was like Spielberg had this level of of uh, this level of experience. And then Toby kind of like, you know, working in something completely new. But Spielberg behind there, not taking over, but allowing him to use you, know, so you run with it and then, you know, do what you're going to do. 
and then we'll come back and do, you know, and that's what I always loved about tales about working with Spielberg is he doesn't push people to their extremes and he doesn't, he's not demanding to an extent that it, you know, drives people over the edge. He's willing to let artists work. And then you say, okay, once you're done, we're, you know, we're going to come back to the table and we're going to take a look at this and we're going to look at what works. And he's also an, a fastidious planner. Like he knows exactly what they're going to do. It's like, okay, and, and he allows time for play because it's fun. It's supposed to be fun. Have a plan. And once you're playing, once, you, once you've completed that, if there's enough time, then we can roll with some interesting stuff. We can do some experimentation and have some fun with it because you never know what people come up with on the fly could be better than what you've planned. So he always allows for that. I love that the whimsical kind of, I would say the, the creative has never gone out of Steven Spielberg and allowing people to actually perform and do the art. It's not just formula for him. It's not just dollars for him. It's about that environment, about that atmosphere, which you can see in every one of his movies, E.T. And even the ones behind the scenes, like, like Poltergeist, you know, creating that family environment, creating that, that exudes beyond the set. Uh, I think that's what sets what also what sets gremlins apart well, and he understand like that he has such a a great level or a great skill and creativity that he understands that you can use if you need to do the thing that's scary but you don't want to show the blood there are better ways to do it using lighting using shot setup developing like the characters in the set because a big thing that offsets poltergeist if you had like this family that was in a conjuring like environment where it's kind of this like sad or more I won't say rundown home, but it's you know, it's not this brightly lit, happy family household out in the desert that you see with poltergeist. It would have been an entirely different movie. Like forget taking your kids, but at the same time, having that environment puts it a little more in the family category. Um, using intelligent shot setups till you're you're using the lighting and the way you're showing what you're encountering to your advantage. Um, it, it not only pulls in the family area, but it kind of acts as a contrast to what's happening to make it even worse. Because you've got this kid with this clown doll and poltergeist, and then suddenly it's killing him. Like, his right. favorite toy is now murdering him, and it's so much worse because of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing is, I'm glad you brought up Poltergeist, because one of the things that really makes Poltergeist apart from a lot of other horror films is that they're a happy family. Right. You, oh, so many horror films now, you have this dysfunctional, where you have the... The mom and dad are fighting and the kid feels abandoned and the other kid is, is doing this and you have this old this like this tension whereas here you have the like the mom and dad love each other they love their kids they give their kids appropriate attention there's like this is a family this is a family we can root behind because we want them to have the happy ending we want it to work out. And when you have the mom that's going to go into the other dimension and try to save the daughter, we're rooting for her. Like, yes. oh, oh, she's going to dimension. Oh, man, I hope it's okay. That's Spielberg. I love it. Yeah. Oh, oh uh, Rodella Sam says, it's now a common descriptor, the Spielbergian suburb. Now, I will agree with that. I loved his idea of, like, you know, the, the, the nuclear family, the – you know, the, the one that supports each other, the one that doesn't judge, the one that, you know, the, the dad who makes bad jokes doesn't get derided for that. Everybody is supporting, everybody's understanding, and we all work together. And yes, it may be 
fantastical, especially nowadays, you know, here in 2023. But back in the 80s, I don't think it, it wasn't. It was what everybody strived for. It's what everybody tried to attain for. He saw that dream there. And then you know, the idea that working together, we can overcome any problem, no matter what the problem is, whether it's gloppy monsters that multiply in water or it's an alien that crash lands or it doesn't matter. It's like we can we can overcome adversity by working together. I love that idea that he pushed in every single thing that he's ever done. That is, uh, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I, and because just build it on top of that, and you can see that going back to Gremlins. So the city, the town that Gremlins takes place in is a studio lot, and one of the things that Joe Dante was adamant about was let it look like a studio lot. That's why, like, yeah, it takes place, it takes place in Christmas, but you don't see like their breath coming out because this is a fantastical town. Let it look like a studio, make it look like it's fun. And that's that Spielberg influence putting together. Jeremy Duncan says yeah, Spielbergian kind of suburb. Of we'll have to steal that for and Mayberry set up. <laughs> <laughs> and I do want to give out interesting, interesting things to note about, about this. Number one, Gizmo was voiced by Howie Mandel, which is really, really cool. I, I dig that. But Frank Welker did the voice for Stripe, which I thought was really, really neat. But other voice actors, Michael Winslow from Police Academy, was also a voice of of, of a, a few of the other gremlins. And Peter Cullen, who was worked on Transformers, one of the legendary voice actors from Transformers, also worked, uh, also was a voice actor. I believe he was the original voice for Optimus Prime in the 80s. So both those two incredible voice actors worked on this production. And then, of course, um, the uh, something I found out that was really, really interesting is that during production, because they were going to keep Gizmo, is that the producers wanted to? They wanted to show the the gremlins doing terrible things to to Gizmo, like torturing him or doing something crazy like that. And so there was actually a, a list made that everybody contributed to called "horrible things." What was it called? It was um, it was horrible things to do or ho horrible things to do to Gizmo list. So it was like all these terrible things that people conjured up. The hanging him and throwing darts at him. Was one of those was one of those items on that list. So all the shit that that happens to him by at the hands of the gremlins was all conjured up by the by the crew themselves. Like, oh, what if they did this to him? Let's run with it and play with it and see what happens. And so uh, some of the interesting stuff. That's everybody involved. I love that teamwork environment. So such good stuff. What's funny? They took and tried to. They ended up using puppetry for it. It's not animatronics. It's puppetry. Um, and they had to use a larger one uh, for the scene where he, you know, duplicates and everything so that they could do the effects they did with his face and his eyes and stuff for that. But, um, yeah, they, they did puppetry uh, for uh, all these elements. And originally it was, I'm trying to think, I think they said it was monkeys that they put it on. I don't think it was chimpanzees. I think it was monkeys because it was closer. They tried to use monkeys, but every time they put the masks on them, the gremlins mask, they would just freak the fuck out. So they had to abandon the idea and go with <laughs> puppets. Is there a scene I, I wanted to ask before we before we move on to the next one? Is there a scene in this particular one that that st that still sits with anybody? Because in this entire film, there is one scene that sits with me that I thought was just beautifully shot. And it was the sequence for me, even though there's so many iconic moments in the movie, the scene when one of them gets dunked in the swimming pool and actually does like a cannonball into the into the swimming pool. 
that secret because you know what's going to happen. You know how bad that is. And yet the way it's shot is not shot like, oh, this is it. But you, you, it allows the audience to get there themselves, you know? And I the, that sequence always got because it's, it's like, oh, holy shit. And then the camera comes out, they run out of the out, they run out of the pool house, and then the the light and the the smoke and everything is coming out of the place, and you can hear them slowly building and building. I loved that sequence. I thought that was brilliant. That's one that, from a filmmaking perspective. Uh, I always dug that. Was there was there one that sat that you guys remember? Uh, I would have to go the theater explosion. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's like a hundred of them that are in the theater and they're all like messing around and all this other kind of stuff. And when the theater just blew up, I was like, damn! <laughs> nice. Well, it's just that story about her dad. Like, every time somebody mentions a movie, that's the first thing that comes to mind because, you know, I'm young, I'm rolling with it, it's fun, it's crazy. Then you've got this kind of safe, cozy moment, and that's your safe time. That's when you're supposed to build down the suspension, relax, and then she tells a story, and you're like, "Well, shit." <laughs> oh, that escalated quickly. That's why I don't like Christmas. And then they parry. I love it in New Batch. They parody. They parody it with uh, mm-hmm. with Lincoln's birthday. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? It's like this is. And they try to go into it, but he's like, "No, no, 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 no time, no time, no time." That's <laughs> why I love. I, I love that they kind of went meta in new batch which was a lot of fun that, that was a more fun one more comedic although had some great animatronics the spider one the uh the winged one there was some really cool fun stuff that they did with it not to mention it had fucking christopher lee in it and uh oh, so yeah. many fantastic actors who came through there but i gotta know J- fucking I, I totally forgot jonathan banks was in the original gremlins jonathan banks who plays mike ermintrout on breaking bad he yeah. was in this movie and i was like and I, I was like holy shit it was like when I saw him, I recently saw him on an episode of fucking uh, Sanford and Son. It was like, he was in, yeah, he did an episode of Sanford and Son. That dude, that dude's been working his ass off, but I love seeing him in this as the, the cop sitting there, like, smoking cigarette. I'm like, ah, you guys. Oh, when the shit. guy in the Santa suit's dying, they have, like, gremlins all over them. And they're sitting <laughs> in the cop car, like, well, and he just rolls up the window. <laughs> fucking love it. Love it. <laughs> so... I want to ask the audience. We have a Gremlins and we have a Gremlins 2. Would you like to see a Gremlins 3? Let us know in the comments below or shoot us an email at weekendhorror at gmail.com. I, I, I know that there's a prequel out right now, that which is um, Gremlins uh, Secrets of the Mogwai, which is, an animated, uh, which is an animated prequel that's currently on HBO Max and will be on Cartoon Network later this year. But I honestly think a Gremlins three would be awesome. I think that would be very cool, especially with what they can do with uh, with practical effects these days. Um, it would be okay as long as you go back to the animatronic route, because like right. we talk about Gremlins, what makes Gremlins so good is the art department and their attention to detail and the fact they went that physicality right. They built all those gremlins that use stop motion and even with gizmo they had different versions of gizmo that a lot of times when they're holding gizmo there's a whole mess of wires coming down and guys with motors and puppetry off screen that make gizmo work the way he did so if you're willing to put that kind of attention to detail and that kind of love yes if you're going to go cgi no right agreed 
Yeah, Travis Brown I think they're prepping three. up because oh, we're, we're I think, rolling I think, up to I like Aaron, what the 40th anniversary next year. Yeah, probably something am. like that. Yeah, yeah. No, but yeah, the rolling up to the 40th. Um, I think they're they're prepping up for something big next year for it. Cool. I think Travis Brown says Gremlins three with the physical effects. Sir Gab says more Gremlins. Hell yeah. Um, oh, we got some no's in there. Zero said no. Sherry Tilly said no. Hey, Colin, definitely not Cromwell. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Um, Plothole says yes. Just a definitive, just an absolute yes. I would like to see them go after it. Zero says it was bad enough they win it too. I enjoyed the new batch. I like there was a lot of really good, funny moments in that. I thought it was a good follow-up. You know, Gremlins in New York. Um, that's that, you know, that's me. Ivy Gentry, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. It says maybe if it is done with loving care. Absolutely. And Joe Dante has to be involved because he's been involved from the get-go. He directed uh Gremlins One and Gremlins Two. He is executive producing Secrets of the Mogwai. It's getting fantastic reviews so far. He would have to be involved. And I think Spielberg as well. <laughs> Sir Gabs has resurrect Spielberg's career. His career is fine. Listen, when you have the filmography that Spielberg has. Like he's good. He's good. He, he can release. Listen, he can release utter crap for the rest of his life, and he will still go down as one of the top five best and definitely most profitable directors of one of the all greatest. Time. Yeah, yeah. I will say, someone someone actually mentioned that uh, that Spielberg is like the polar opposite. That we talk about it like he's the polar opposite of James Cameron, and he is, or the polar opposite of of Stanley Kubrick, and he was. Kubrick and Cameron are in their own kind of field as far as like the brilliance of direction. Whereas directors like Spielberg and uh, Spielberg and like Kurosawa are in, an, in another camp entirely. There is a difference between, you know, there's the technical aspect and then there's the interpersonal aspect of it. Cameron gets the technical and he gets storytelling. They, they all do. That's the, that's the difficult part is like telling a story in a compelling way. That's a big part of it. But it's also the ability to remember that you are making a movie. This is meant to, it is fun. You're telling a story. You're playing characters. It's literally fucking make-believe. And sometimes from what actors and other people who have worked with them have said, individuals like Kubrick and Cameron and some other directors, like, you know, uh, even though despite their, their fantastic movies, sometimes they forget that. Okay, like David O'Reilly, shit like that. Sometimes people forget that. Spielberg never forgot that, that we are here to have fun. It's not about, yes, I'm spending $40 million, or I'm spending like, you know, $20 million to make a life-size T-Rex, you know, and we're going to make it work, you know, but we're running around with a life-size T-Rex. How is that not fucking amazing? Let's have fun with this. And he lets his actors play. That's the important thing. You know? Yeah, that's there's actually a video on YouTube that I was watching the other day, and it was like a five six minute thing of Spielberg directing on Jurassic Park, and it's the mm -hmm. scene where they get into the uh, the green jeeps for the first time, and Spielberg's working with Sam Neill. Uh, Sam Neill, he's working with um, Malcolm uh, Ian Malcolm, and he's working with uh, just the rest of them, and he's just going he's just going over directions, and you really get a chance to really see his style as he's telling them what he wants but at the same time he's like where would you be looking oh well you know actually i would be probably looking right there okay well let's have you look right there so it's a really give take on how his style goes versus the tyrannical style of somebody like kubrick with this is my way it's a highway this is the way and the collaborative effort works better like 99.9 percent .9 of the time 
unless Absolutely. unless you were Kubrick or Cameron. Those are like probably the only two exceptions. And even then, Cameron as Cameron has <laughs> taken suggestions from other people. So Plothole brings up Scorsese is the greatest of all time. No argument. Scorsese also in the same camp as someone like Steven Spielberg. Absolutely is. All right. Well, we got one last one that we're gonna that we're gonna that we're gonna power through. I'm glad we finally get to uh, get to chat about this one. Um, oh, wrote in the last name said Tammy the T Rex had a full size T Rex. Let's not talk about that. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's Listen, the T Rex needed work after Jurassic Park. Okay, we all <laughs> we all done stuff we're ashamed of. He's <laughs> not blaming the T Rex. Also, sometimes uh, you got to do carnosaur. <laughs> sometimes you, you get some. Oh, woof. Dang. I said, yo, oh, God, Tammy and the T-Rex. Fuck. Well, we were talking about a $20 million T-Rex, not a $200 T-Rex. All right. So our final film tonight before we dive into uh, came out June 10th, 2005, and we have High Tension. Let's check out this trailer. <laughs> Jeremy Duncan, tits and scales. Fuck yeah. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Plottle said, "Snore." <laughs> but that was high. That was the trailer for High Tension, um, uh, directed by. Um, I was to make sure I get this right because he's French. Alexandre Aja or Asia? Aja. Aja. Alexander Aja. My bad. I just want to make sure. And written by Alexander Aja and Gregory Gregory Lavoisier, um, starring. Cecily DeFrance, um, uh, the model and actress Mai Wen, who people remember from Fifth Element, and Philip uh, Nahon. The film follows a uh, two girlfriends who are two girls who are friends who go out to the country for a study break, and they're staying at one of their houses. And then the family is besieged by a serial killer or a you know crazy homicidal maniac who then kidnaps the girl and uh, kidnaps one of the girls, and then the other girl proceeds to go after him with a massive twist at the end, but shit gets definitely extremely real in this one. Uh, I say shit gets, you know, really fucking insane. Um, this is an intriguing one. I I remember when this one came out that Bottles <laughs> is Alexander Dumbass. Dumas. Dumas. <laughs> Mr. Dumbass. It's Dumas. So, I... I enjoyed this one obviously because you know it gets really it gets really really extreme. The the violence is pretty brutal in it, and obviously the the massacre in the house and the violence that takes place you know in the the fight to try and free this girl, and of course the big twist at the end um, was I found to be intriguing. But it, obviously it's a brutal visual spectacle. But there was some problems that a lot of pretty people have with this, and that and that predominantly was with the pacing. It's a pretty it's a pretty slow pace. Um, it, yeah. it's a pretty slow. I so I enjoyed this film. Um, the thing I really, I the thing I liked about this film was when it started doing like the house massacre part. I like how it was primarily from her perspective. Now, yeah, obviously, if you know the ending, you kind of make sense uh, why it is that way. But I, I like that you heard it more. 
than like when they go and they get her friend and you hear the attack going on. When they're chasing the kid in the cornfield, you hear that from her perspective. I like the sound design from that. I like the sound design. Instead of, yeah, it still shows the kills from here and there, but it was always from her perspective, which gave it a nice twist instead of like, oh, here's just a kill. Here's another kill. Here's another kill. Um, are there now, does this film have issues with that? Yeah, for example, how she can carry a concrete saw like full speed running for two miles in the woods. <laughs> the thing probably weighs a hundred pounds. I mean, she has to have arms of steel and then go through a windshield. Sure. Fine. Whatever on that one. But, um, what like watching the trailer, the film is definitely a lot better than what the trailer makes it out to be. Now, how you feel about the ending is how you ever feel about the ending, but that's how I felt about it. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of the, it's, we talked about before Mars, that French New Extremity movement. It's one of the ones that group is grouped into that, and it's nowhere near as brutal as Martyrs. I don't think anything's nearly as brutal as Martyrs. But um, it, it did a good job of the slow burn on it. Uh, you know, I like the fact they built up the suspense. My only problem is the way they executed for the payoff. Um, it was an interesting twist, but they could have added in some more clues because what you really ideally want when you have a twist is when you get to it, the audience looks back, feels that all the clues were there. Um, your biggest ones a lot of times are laid in act one, but they feel all the clues are there and they just missed them. And if you've done a good enough job, they never had a chance. Like with Sixth Sense, most people never had a chance of guessing unless they knew there was a twist coming and they looked for it. But this one, it didn't feel like it had laid in those clues till you could be like, oh, that explains that. Um, I think that's where it takes the biggest loss. And then as far as the brutality on it, it's really the the brutality's really up and down. Like with martyrs, the brutality, it rises quickly and it stays there. Whereas this one, some of them we've seen before. The slitting of the throat with the razor where it opens like a mouth. We've seen that. Um, I think they did a good job with handling what happened to the kid because nobody wants to see that happen, but ignoring it completely would be wrong with the dog. They avoided the yelp that you, that is a tradition that to a point of cliche, but they showed that the dog died. You killed the dog. Um, but then you take and you'll like amp up to the saw or you amp up to like when she went after his head with that table leg and the barbed wire, I'm like, his face probably looks like a rice colander right now, but then gets up. It, of course, you know, it's not him. Um, but when he gets up, he should have not looked as pretty as he did running through those woods with that saw. Like he should have had pudding for a face. Um, but yeah, it just, it was really, it's, uh, it was very up and down for me. I, I would bring it as a very good movie, but I don't think it's one of the greats. Like a lot of people do. I, I would honestly say that it the, the biggest issue that a lot of people uh, had access to the, the theatrical version of this one and to really, really get it, you need the, I would say the best way to view this one is the unrated version that has everything intact, has not been trimmed for content because all of the brutality is much more extended and uh, you can see the level of uh, detail they went into as far as, the, as far as the effects work, as far as the practical effects work. And of course, watch it dubbed. Oh, no, sorry. Watch it subtitled, not mm -hmm. dubbed. Subtitle is the best way to watch this because you get you when you hear their natural voices, that helps you to get into it. But some people just really, really don't like subtitles. They need to hear it dubbed. 
I thought that the dubbing was handled well with some parts in French and some parts in English. So that was okay, but I think subtitle is the best way to watch this and the uh, specifically the unrated version because the rated version, the theatrical version, cuts out some moments that really give the, I would say, the balance to that ultra slow pacing leading up to the carnage that ensues because all of that is all in the all, all in the unrated version and you're kind of like, wow, this is kind of plodding along, setting up this kind of like sort of in relationship between the two of them and then all of a sudden wham, the, the carnage happens. Well, you need it in order to make up for that slow burn all the way up to the point. You need that excessive, uh, that, that kind of gratuitous violence to balance those two out. So it feels like it's nonstop and it just keeps going. And I think uh, yeah, the theatrical one kind of gives this one a, a it kind of gives people a bad sense of what the movie was really supposed to be. So I, this one, I'll put the unrated above the theatrical any day. Yeah, I always try to watch. I I, I watch it dub on uh, Favesome, but I always try to watch the subtitle version because I want to hear the actors act. Versus, rarely, rarely do you have a situation where the actors themselves go and redub it. Even if they go and re redub, it's not the same. When you're on set and you can see the blood, you can have somebody actually running at you with a saw. It's you're able to give a better performance than when you're sitting in a sound booth. And they could they're playing the they're playing the film on a screen with like time code and stuff mm -hmm. on it, and you're trying to recreate that energy, or or most of the time you get somebody else, and it's just not the same. It's not right. <laughs> Some people the the subtitles take them out of it. And I think it's a left brain right brain thing because left brain is really where you get into anything artistic, kind of getting the disbelief of it. But then you switch to right brain to read, and I think it pulls them out of it. But dubbed versions to me always feel like cartoons like especially like the the crappy 1980s ones where they turned out like one spider-man after another and nothing ever matched the movement <laughs> of the lips yeah. it's just dubbed versions always feel like that uh johnny said if it got any slower we watch it in reverse <laughs> that opening i had forgotten how how slow that opening was how much of a slow burn how much how long it takes although i will say a fantastic way to introduce your villain masturbating with a severed head on the side of the road. I was like, that was, I was like, you knew it was going to be something fucking insane when that's killer. No name, no backstory, just random killer. It was like, oh, severed head. Oh, I'm good. And then chucks out the window. And then you're like, okay, this is good. This is not going to end well. This is going to be really, really bad for all. And I loved the, uh, the I, I, I mean, I dug all the, practical effects and all the brutal violence went through the makeup effects were fantastic in this one you know even though ultimately the pacing is what got it but i think it's because you know alexandra uh, uh it, all of his films are i think are deliberately done that way that he tries to unbalance people or he tries to subvert people's expectations by creating this kind of odd symmetry within his films this kind of like off kilter symmetry um, and I dig that. I kind of dig that because you don't really know when to expect stuff, which I which I dug. It's like, you know, you know, something terrible is going to happen. The question is just when. And if you're following a formula, you people can begin to anticipate it. Ah, here's where we go. But when is it really going to kick off? And I love that he subverted the audience's expectations. But that's always a risk. It's a risk to try and do that because most people be like, ah, he, he put me off. And once you put an audience off. Once you put the audience off, it's hard to get them back. You know, that was the that was the hill he had to overcome. And I think that's why the unrated version is so much better. 
so that you could that really get you over that that really get you over that hill but the theatrical one just kind of failed that's why at the theaters this one didn't do as well and then when it came out the unrated came out on dvd it did so much better you know people uh, picked it up then i know i've got a copy in my collection uh, but and here's there are uh-huh. i was gonna say there are things that one thing that really hurts i think i don't know if you call them plot holes maybe um is that at the end so where the where did she get this truck why does it have the saw in it? Did she steal it from somebody? What's going on? I think if and the same thing with the car chase with the sports car, which is kind of an ultra dreamy sports car. So that that is kind of odd that this gas station attendant has this in France has this hellacious American sports car. But if they had done something like she comes back to her afterward, she kills the villain and she had it in the back of the car they drove there start kind of integrating some of those elements into the experience she's having with her delusions, I think it would have served a lot better. I know like even before hearing or seeing the film, because I knew about the twist ending, unfortunately. Um, I heard about it ahead of time, but um, that was a lot of people's complaint is they're like, they didn't explain these elements that entered into it. And, you know, how did this get here and how did that happen and how did it play out for her? They could have elucidated more on that. And I think it would have served it better. Yeah, if they call if they follow the formula closer to Fight Club, which mm. the Fight Club, the way they played that reveal at the end was brilliant because then it went back to certain key scenes to go like sometimes, sometimes uh you were Tyler Durden. And you were in the middle and you're giving instructions and he shows him like yelling at like his yelling as troops or his men. Sometimes it's him just in the crowd. Sometimes he's watching. Sometimes he's doing this. Sometimes he's doing that. So it helped explain like this is how he can jump from um, personality to personality and how the events were still able to unfold the way they did. Whereas they have the big reveal of her and then they never explain any other scene. Like, for example, the sports car. Part. I I've I've always took it because they because that was left up to the audience that it that there was that the sports car was never there that whole sequence yeah. was all in her mind all of that yeah like the, the that whole one. like the the throwdown with the you know, like the, the whole car sequence the whole like watching herself from outside of her body the whole car sequence the whole uh like the the throwdown when she gets like the gets the two by four and the uh, the barbed wire and shit is beating the shit out of them all of that was in her own mind. Yeah, and then the the big one, so the sports car was one, but the truck, too, because the presence of the truck, like, how does she have this truck out in the middle of nowhere? Where did she acquire it from? Um, and then on top of that, you know, he takes and he puts a picture of her up. Has she been killing her friends for that many damn years? Because there's a lot of pictures there. So, like, what's the history there? What He could have explained more of what was going on in her head, and I Is think it would have... Yeah, like how many people has she killed or how did she how did this alternate personality develop? Like what the fuck is going on there basically? <laughs> yeah, cuz that's that's a good question about the truck because the truck doesn't arrive until after they're already at the house, they show up in another car. So it's like, but when it finally has a reveal, she's in the truck. So the truck the truck really exists. But how did the truck get there? Did she leave and then go retrieve this truck and come back? And where was the truck to begin with? So it's like maybe the scene where uh, he is taking care of himself with the head, maybe that didn't even exist. 
it could it could have been in her mind. It's it's hard to tell. I I dug it. It's hard to tell like what she's fabricating for herself. Like what scenes were her dissociating, kind of imagining in her mind, and what scenes are not. So like it could have been possible that the truck was never actually there. That the vehicle that she's using is just her is just the vehicle that they came with. It could have been that. But we never get that. We never get the hint of that possibility. We just know at one point, uh, when somebody else is involved, that we don't. We never see the truck when there is a third person around. So, but then, the, then there's the sequence, and then of course. But I love it. If you go back and watch it a second time, you'll recognize that May Wen's character, um, uh, uh, Alex, never reacts to her until after the big whole thing's over, and she busts open the back to free her. She never actually reacts to her. She never looks directly at her and never like, you know, does anything. The only thing, the only thing that doesn't make sense was a little bit off was when she hands her the knife in the back of the truck, but that could have been in her own mind. She never actually gave her a knife. Yeah. So, so. It, you know, it's interesting. I, I love that. I like that the audience could play with it a little bit. I really, really do. But this is, this is interesting because there was the giant twist in that. That was, for some, for, I think, for some people unexpected. But for some people, we have people in the live chat saying that it was absolutely telegraphed. So, actually, I'm going to change this. I want to ask the audience, for the movie High Tension, do you think the twist – okay, did the twist surprise you or did you see it coming? Because I will, I will fully admit, I didn't see it coming. That is actually surprised me. So, because this is pre-Fight Club, so I had no idea that was going to happen. So, I'm very curious. Uh, what did you think? Let us know in the live chat or in the comments below or weekendordergmail.com. Did the, did the twist in high tension, did that surprise you or did you see it coming? Love to hear what people think about that one. I'll be oh. honest. I didn't see it coming. I did. Yeah, I should. Yeah, I did. What about you, Aaron? I never had the chance. Like I said, someone spoiled it before me before I even saw it. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Jeremy Duncan said, uh, the twist pissed me off, honestly. Zero says, did not see it coming. Plotel says, there was a twist. Yes, there was a twist. <laughs> Dingus. Uh, oh, Fight Club. Was Fight Club 99? Yeah, Fight Club was 99. Oh, shit. Fight Club was 99. Mm -hmm. Damn. Ooh, I hadn't thought about that movie in a, in a minute. Holy shit. Uh, Sir Cab says, I called it after the dream sequence opener. Ah, okay. Yeah, this was like, this was 2005. Yeah, High Tension came out in 2005. Uh, Jay verse says the CCTV made me think the twist surprised me. I saw the signs retrospectively. Yeah. In hindsight. Absolutely. Yeah, oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Damn. Fight Club is that old. Oh man. These fucking dates. You have any idea how many fucking dates are in my head when it comes to movies? Uh, I think it's way too, way too many, way, way too many. They all store for me. I've got, I've got like weird things with numbers where like, if I don't use it regularly, it's out yep. the window. <laughs> <laughs> I think Andrew was surprised. Oh, sorry. I think Andrew was surprised by it. Absolutely. See, it's interesting. I think it's like 50-50. That's what it seems like. Yeah. All right. Well, Aaron, you know what time it is, bud. Yep. All right. I can't get up the live chat. Somebody else will bring it up. I've got it here right here. I got it up too. All right. What time so, is it? It's time for trivia. <laughs> All right. Get Google up and prepare to cheat, you bastards. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Legendary horror director Joe Dante started his career as a co-director on what horror comedy film? Oh, Legendary horror director Joe Dante started his career as a co-director on what horror comedy film? 
What's the prize this week? Mystery? Mystery prize. Mystery surprise, prize. A surprise item from the Weekend Horror Store. For the first person to get the correct answer in the live chat, gets a mystery prize from the Weekend Horror Store. Let me see. Plato said, The Exorcist. I win. Nope, not The Exorcist. Nope. Sorry, bud. And you can't win anyway. Get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, come on. Who's got that first answer? Legendary Smart. horror director Joe Dante started his career as a co-director on what horror comedy film? Who's got the right answer? First Smart ass and he's like, Dante's peak. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Duncan said the burbs. Nope, wasn't the burbs. And it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. <laughs> Sherry, uh, Sherry Taylor says, I do, but I won last week. Uh, Robert Biter, Robert Biter says, Gremlins. Nope, not Gremlins. Okay, and Sherry Tilly, Sherry Tilly, feel free to win again. Feel free to win again, Sherry. We have lots of stuff to give away. Jeremy Duncan said, oh, Piranha, not Piranha. But getting closer, getting closer, Jerry. Different legendary director. Come on, come on. I know somebody's got it. So legendary director, Eating Raul. Nope, wasn't Eating Raul. See, legendary horror director Joe Dante started his career as a co-director on what horror comedy film? There we Jaber go. We says, got it. There it is. Javers nailed it with Hollywood Boulevard. Yep. Congratulations, Javers. Congratulations. Really plot hole, Boglins. <laughs> Do you remember this? Do you guys remember those toys, the Boglins? No. You don't remember those? I think so. Oh. Holy shit, dude. How could you know? Wait, 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 wait. I'm a lot older than you. What, what, what year were you born? I was born in 84. You're only four yeah, years younger. Yeah. How do you not remember I, Boglins? I, I don't remember Boglins. <laughs> I want everybody in the live chat to shame this those man things, for not knowing what a Boglin is. Yeah, I just never, I the, never had one. About None of my friends had Toys them. melting. <laughs> we had one and the latex on it within the year had turned nasty and sticky from decay it was just like all stuck yeah it was more horrifying when it started because this is like <laughs> uh but plotel says eugene didn't have the cool toys growing up he, it looks like he didn't no jeremy i did duncan not says, jeremy duncan says us from the 70s remember the boglins there was a whole bunch of, like a whole bunch of them dude man boglins were fucking great dude they were fantastic Literally, okay. I wish I could describe this for you. It was like it was a puppet. Was I'm, like I'm pulling up pictures. I'm pulling yeah, pictures yeah, right now. You could put your hand in there. You could control the mouth and you could control the eyes. Uh uh I yes, don't. They, yeah, came, like they a... came like a, they came in their own little crate, their own little like crate with uh, bars on it and shit. Dude, Boglins were awesome, dude. Yeah, and it's like a bowling ball grip that you controlled it with. I think. Yep. Bruno's like name says shame. Ding, shame, ding. <laughs> Joshua Lee says, shun the non-believer. Shun him. Ding, <laughs> oh, fucking ding, it. ding. All right, well, I miss Alex because he was so much younger. <laughs> congratulations again, Jay Verse. We are going to get that printed out and shipped out to you ASAP. Well done. All right. And now close out another episode of the Weekend Horror Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and we truly hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, smash those like and subscribe buttons, and be sure to hit that bell so you never miss a future episode. Join us next week when we look back at the 80s island stalker terror, Humongous. 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 <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> humongous. We turn to Victor Crowley in Hatchet 3, the newlywed terror in Honeymoon Horror, and the gory holiday homecoming horror, Red Christmas. Try saying that 10 times fast. I'm a fan of alliteration. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> Be sure to check out Josh Oswin's store at badsamurai.store. He does all the awesome artwork you see splatter all over our merch, which you can find over at Teespring. For more Weekend Horror, check out all the bloody links in the description. Follow us on the socials for the Daily Splatter, your daily horror recommendation. Join our Discord for watch parties, big announcements, and all kinds of horror shenanigans. And support the show through our PayPal link or through our Patreon. Join the higher tiers for early content access and behind-the-scenes fun with the crew, or even just support the show for as little as $1 a month. What are you waiting for? Join us. As always, thank you for being the greatest audience a horror film podcast could have. I'm Eugene. I'm JL. And I'm sitting in for the fat guy. We'll see you <laughs> next week. And as always, stay scared. <laughs>